You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. Tina Brown is an award-winning journalist, editor and author. Between 1979 and 2001, she was the editor-in-chief of Tatler, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker and Talk. In each of these roles, Tina has pushed boundaries, taken risks and grown readerships. In 2008, she launched and edited the digital news site, The Daily Beast, an online news magazine which arguably pioneered the way in digital news reporting, winning News Website of the Year in 2012 and 2013, respectively. Tina also founded Women in the World as a live journalism platform for female leaders and has hosted 10 sold-out summits at New York's Lincoln Center, giving a platform to amazing women such as Hillary Clinton, Queen Rania, and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Nadia Murad. Tina has also written extensively on the British royal family, including the New York Times bestseller, The Diana Chronicles, and as of earlier this year, The Palace Papers, which tells of the period between Diana's death and that of Prince Philip. She's also the author of The Vanity Fair Diaries, which was chosen as one of the best books of 2017 by multiple publications. Tina was married to the legendary newspaper editor, Sir Harry Evans, who died in 2020. She called him the most magical of men. Tina has a CBE from Her Late Majesty the Queen for services to journalism and is inducted into the magazine editor's Hall of Fame. Tina, it's such a pleasure to have you on Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you. I love, I love this whole title and this whole concept, so I'm very happy to be here. Well, I wondered if you could kick off by telling us a little bit about your personal story, where you grew up, the early days of your career, and and how you found yourself in New York. Well, I was um, raised in the in the in the Thames Valley. My father was a movie producer. Uh, my mother used to work for Laurence Olivier as his sort of coordinating exec. I was raised in the the the, the Thames Valley village in Buckinghamshire of uh, Little Marlow. And uh, went to Oxford um, and from there sort of went straight into journalism from undergraduate journalism right into the whole maelstrom where I, I was talent spotted uh, quite early on and went to work actually as an editor when I was 25 because I had started writing for the Sunday Times, uh, met Harry, fallen madly in love and realized there's no way that I could stay writing with the Sunday Times. That wouldn't be good. So I, I thought, well, where do I want to work? Aside from his newspaper, the Sunday Times, I didn't really want to work anywhere else for anyone else. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'd like to, to be an editor. And at that moment, I was sort of headhunted by um, somebody, uh, a real estate guy who had just bought the Tatler, which at that time was a very sort of you know, ailing little shiny sheet, you know, of a few pages and a few pictures at that moment. And um, he's wanted to turn it into a real glossy magazine, you know, and uh, I said, okay, let me do it. And I came in with sort of my friends, essentially, the six friends I had from, you know, undergraduate journalism and people that I knew. And, you know, it took off like a, a bucking bronco, bronco very early on. One of the great stories that we sort of drove was, of course, the rise of Lady Diana Spencer, which happened, of course, in um, 1981, uh, when we'd been there for two years. And my staff were all very much of the age of Diana. So they, they a lot of them knew her. And we became the sort of the go-to place for the great Diana story and um, wrote that in the same way that O.J. Simpson was the story that made CNN. I sort of think that Diana's wedding and all of that was one of the, fa- the first kind of big stories that we, we really covered. Amazing. I mean, you've already talked about how you pioneered the way 
as presumably one of the youngest editors during that time. And you've spent so much of your career at the cutting edge of journalism. I wanted to ask about when you actually came to New York. And at what point in that journey did you come across to New York more permanently? Well, what happened was that Condé Nast bought the Tatler, Condé Nast magazines, the big American magazine company. And because of that, I swam into the ken of, you know, of the American company. Uh, and Tatler had became such a success that they wanted to recruit me to try to bail out the disaster, which at that time was Vanity Fair. They just relaunched the great legendary title but the first uh, founding editor was a complete disaster. It was kind of mocked as a, a turkey of a, of a launch. They then put in a kind of caretaker editor, and that didn't work. And then they came to me, uh, age 30, and said, would you ever come to New York? And at that point, I was actually on vacation when I got that call in the Bahamas with my husband. I got a call saying, would I come to New York to have lunch with, with Cy Newhouse? And I thought, that's funny. Normally, you don't go from the Bahamas for lunch, but I kind of recognize what that could be, right? So I arrived and he said, well, we want you to edit Vanity Fair and we want you to start immediately after Christmas. And I didn't um, go home again for two years, actually. I, I arrived with a wardrobe of cheesecloth bikinis and <laughs> and, sorry, and sort of, you know, beach attire from, from the Bahamas and I had to go shopping for a winter wardrobe and, and, and start life as editor of Vanity Fair. It was a pretty exciting beginning. My wonderful husband said, you do it, absolutely grab it. I'll go home, you know, pack up the house, get myself an academic job. And that's exactly what he did. He, he came back, he went to Duke University for a while, and then he became, ultimately, he became a publisher and president of Random House. So, you know, that's how our odyssey began. And I love New York. I mean, I used to come when I was editor of Tatler and always found it just such a shot of adrenaline. I, found, I loved the pace. I loved it. And I used to come a lot to New York to sort of get stories, see photographers, see writers, but really just because I wanted that sort of electric uh, charge that I used to get from coming to New York. And my husband always wanted to live here, actually. I mean, he always wanted to come to the US. He, he had won a Harkness Fellowship when he was a student and he'd spent a year traveling through the US and, and deep south and, and Chicago. And he always had a big romance about America. And I developed a great romance about American magazines. You know, I wanted to edit I wanted to guess I wanted to be in the big time of uh, publishing. Mm. And that's what, uh, of course, Connie Nass magazines in the 80s was the big time. You know, they had Vogue and Vanity Fair and GQ and House and mm. Garden. You know, it was a massive magazine empire. And of course, halfway through, they also bought The New Yorker, which I edited next. So it was the right place to be at the right time. And I love your description of New York because I think that energy really does sum it up. And I've not been here for half as long as you have, but I still have these pinch me moments when you're in a taxi late at night and you see the lights. I mean, do you still get butterflies in your stomach all these years later living here? I do, actually. I think that New York at night is just unbeatable as a cityscape. It feels like this is the capital of the action. Do you still have any British habits that you have brought to your New York lifestyle? Oh, so many. It's ridiculous. Uh, I still like to get The Spectator as a paper magazine sent. I absolutely have to have my four o'clock uh, cup of tea. I'm a huge fan of Tea and Sympathy uh, downtown, which is a wonderful little uh, tea shop. And my daughter and my son and daughter and I, we used to go with Harry, you know, every Sunday for breakfast. Yes, I'm still very much a creature of English habits. Oh, I can almost smell British bacon cooking as you talk. And you've spent so much of your career at the cutting edge of journalism. What, what lessons have you learned about what makes for a successful publication? 
Well, I think what makes a successful publication is perhaps what makes anything you do successful, which is intensity, passion, feeling for the zeitgeist. I mean, one of the things I was able to bring to both Vanity Fair, I think everything I've edited is a sense of what people want to read about just a little bit before they're quite sure. <laughs> and, you know, if you if you act on that confidently on that sensibility and you need to act confidently you know I never I never did surveys or polls or anything of that kind I was edited from my own instincts of what I thought was a great story or I would meet somebody and think that person is going to be interesting and important and act on it you know I follow my instincts a lot that's really how I how I edit and you know it's actually paid off sort of very well for me as a matter of fact because frequently I would feature something in one of the magazines that you know really wasn't that sort of much of a vibrating thing as we went to press. But by the time it came out, it seemed to be what people wanted. I guess I think you need that to be an editor. You have to have that tuning fork that that, that kind of vibrates, goes ping when it sees a story that's going to be one that people want to read. Some people have described you as having a, a, a trademark formula of taking risks and pushing boundaries and at Tatler, you arguably abandoned the reverence with which it, it previously treated the rich and famous. And, and you know, you, you brought in real stories about their foibles, sometimes with quite salacious details. I mean, would, you, <laughs> would you sort of see yourself as a disruptor in the journalism world? Yeah, I, I do think I was. I, not, not because I was sort of looking to be, but because I was, you know, confidently sort of going after the stories I wanted and, and pushing very hard to get them at the time that I thought they were relevant. I mean, I used to have a maxim that, you know, the right story at the right wrong time is in fact the wrong story. You, you, you've got to have the right story at the right time. That's, that's the critical thing when people want to read it. And that's the push. That's the, you know, and that makes it uh, sometimes intense. It's very intense working uh, very often with me because I know, I mean, I feel I have to get this. We need this story and I, I need to find the right writer immediately to do it, you know, and, and make, persuade them to, because you have to be persuasive as an editor. You have to make people, you know, ask, cajole, get that interview, get the writer to be interested in the interview, make, you know, make somebody say yes. It's a very sort of, it's all about persuading. I think that the, you have to have the passion to make it credible. I've always found that that I've never sort of found it works to try to persuade people to do something not in their best interest, actually. It doesn't work. I don't waste my time on that. I, I, I try to always see it from their point of view. Why would they do this story? What's in it for them? Now, it doesn't mean to say they're always going to like the story, but they're not going to say yes, unless at least they, they can feel it's in their interest to do so, you know? So you have to be, understand how to make that ask. To that point, are there any stories reflecting back that you're particularly proud of in that regard? One of the things that I was really pleased with was the persuading William Styron when I heard him speak at a charity dinner for suicide survivors. And it was a very kind of private function, really. But he got up and he talked about how he had suffered tremendously from depression and even contemplated suicide. And I asked him if he would write that up for Vanity Fair. And to my delight, he did. And we called it Darkness Visible. It was a wonderful essay about depression that just made so many waves to have this really big literary writer making this confessional sort of reach out essentially to an audience that that had never heard this from him or, or meant for, from a lot of people actually depression at that time was far more of a taboo so it was a, it, it really made waves and he then turned it into a book with the same title and it was you know it was done on 60 minutes and it really had impact so that was one of the things that I loved about doing Vanity Fair essentially was that we you know we could make stories that had great impact we did a 
big, big story on the menopause, actually, by Gail Sheehy. I know that there's a lot of interest in that topic at the moment in the UK, but at Vanity Fair, we, we did that in 1990. We did it. We called it The Silent Passage. And Gail wrote about the taboo of menopause, essentially. And that was very early on. And uh, I think we were really one of the first to actually address that topic in such a kind of candid and confessional way, which, which Gail did. So, and she turned that into a book as well. So, I mean, you know, we, we, we did stories that made a, a great deal of impact. The story, though, that, that a lot of people remember it for was when I put Demi Moore pregnant and naked yes. on the cover of Vanity Fair. And, I mean, that was very much about my wanting to sort of show women liberated from the claustrophobia of, uh, of maternity clothes because I had just come out of my own second pregnancy and I was so tired of sort of trying to kind of look good, you know, while I was pregnant and, you know, feeling kind of that everybody expected you somehow to kind of wear these like maternity clothes. And I remember saying to Annie Leibovitz, you know, she's pregnant, you know, how are we going to photograph her? And Annie said, maybe we shouldn't try to hide it anymore because in those days you know when movie stars were pregnant you sort of photographed them just up and up to the waist and I said you know what let's show her her pregnancy in, in the way that uh, you know in a, in a very glorious way of course Annie being Annie really took it to the extremes I didn't mean take all her clothes off and have <laughs> but when the picture came in it was so extraordinary seeing that picture I knew this picture was going to be the most fabulous celebration of 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 maternity, essentially, of, of a woman who's pregnant. One of the things that was great about Colin Astor that time and about Cy Newhouse was that, you know, I showed it to him and I said, Cy, I really want to do this. And um, of course, the circulation department were very much against it. I mean, they they thought that Walmart, et cetera, would just not have it on the newsstand. And indeed, Walmart said they wouldn't have it on the newsstand. And we had to put it into a kind of plastic bag as if it was some kind of porno mag, you know. Of course, it just made it even more exciting. That that just sold and sold. I mean, it took our sales up from 800,000 to 1.2 million where they stayed. I think that's still the number of Vanity Fair sales. But that was the kind of quantum leap that just blew our sales out of the water, never to look back. And actually, I really think that women's empowerment is a theme that you have clearly picked up and championed through, through, through all of the different roles that you've done. And, and I wondered if you could... Tell me a little bit more about uh, your work founding Women in the World, which, again, feels like a, a really innovative, before its time, when it started, moment. I mean, of course, it's on pause now since COVID. I, it was hard to continue. It was such a major live event every year. I mean, that was just, for me, a real passion project that developed into being a full-time activity because it just took off again so amazingly that we were able to fill Lincoln Center with 2,500 people over, you know, for, for three days running, uh, every seat filled. And essentially, it was born from my sort of work as a board member for Vital Voices. It's a nonprofit that empowers and mentors emerging women leaders uh, from all over the world. And I went to one of their retreats and I met these extraordinary women from Argentina and Liberia who were so brave, I thought. They were fighting child marriage. They were fighting absolute sort of cultural repressions. They were fighting, you know, being allowed to take off a hijab. They were fighting every kind of, of, of sort of discrimination, if you like, just because they were women. And yet they were such amazing speakers and so exciting to watch. I said, let's create a live event where we put them on the stage and let people hear their stories because they're never going to get airtime, frankly, in... Uh, Certainly not on American TV. I mean, the BBC will sometimes do stories of such people, but not 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 here, really. I mean, it's very, very difficult to get those voices of somebody from Iran or from Pakistan on American television. It's just very difficult. So I 
created I, I sort of really wanted to make these women stars and we and we really did actually our first our opening summit we had the amazing uh, Lema Bowie from Liberia who started really was started the kind of revolt against the despot Charles Taylor in the 90s where she led this kind of woman's revolt where they all dressed in white and they did this huge sit down and they they really pressured to end the civil war there I turned her story into a book which we published when I was at the Daily Beast with Beast Books as we called it and just as she boarded the plane to come for her book tour with us, she learned she had the Nobel Prize with Ellen Sirleaf Johnson. So, you know, we we found these women and before they were well known. I mean, we featured Maria Ressa from the Philippines before anyone knew about her here. She got the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, the year two years ago. Same thing, Nadia Murad, the extraordinary, she also got a Nobel Prize. She was the Yazidi young woman who many of her family were disappeared or murdered uh, uh, by ISIS. And she's another remarkable hero. So these are women who I'm very proud that we furthered their limelight, if you like, or rather gave them the limelight, which kind of brought them into the public attention. I hope you're planning to bring it back. Perhaps. It's my whole team dispersed in COVID, of course, mm. but we'll see. It sounds absolutely incredible. And as you say, such a privilege to give a platform to so many amazing women whose stories might not otherwise be told. Absolutely right. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about your perspective on how journalism has changed over the years. And and I love that you said that you get The Spectator in print copy, (laughs) but I guess the reality is that people are now moving away from print to digital. And and I wonder from where you sit, how have you seen that transition and how have you responded to it in the various roles that you've performed as well? Well, I mean, frankly, you know, I've transitioned too. I basically read everything on my phone now. I still buy the papers in the morning because I just like the feel of them, but I end up actually migrating to my phone and they sit there on the table. So Harry and I used to go every morning to a little diner around the corner with our big stack of New York Times and FTs and things. I'm a complete digital animal myself now. And of course, you know, Having done the Daily Beast, I actually loved editing a digital site I discovered. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. I thought, well, I'm a print gal, you know, I it's all about pictures and headlines and, you know, and and, and beautiful paper, which, which I loved. But at the same time, I also saw the excitement and the reach of digital journalism. You know, it was very exciting when a story took off and you felt it was almost like having a fish on a hook. You know, you could see the traffic numbers go spiking up and you thought, it was exciting. You could, you knew that you were reaching people, that people were reading it. I have sort of transitioned. I mean, I think that the, the biggest problem, of course, is, is funding great journalism, because as these platforms have collapsed, and they have mostly because of digital disruption and corporate greed with, you know, hedge funds buying newspapers and then, you know, draining them of, of funds and talent and stuff. There's a you know, it's not only digital disruption that has ruined uh, so much of the press, it's also that greed. I feel very strongly that we have to figure out new ways to, to fund journalism, essentially. And, and there's a lot of very interesting work being done by, you know, nonprofits who are funding investigative journalism. And actually, I've um, helping to do my bit. I've raised a legacy fund in my husband's name. He was the great crusading editor of the Sunday Times. And I have raised a a big legacy fund for him, actually, which funds an annual uh, investigative journalism fellowship, allows the the young winner to embed Reuters, who's one of the partners, uh, uh, for six to eight months in their investigative department and uh, also have access to Durham University, where Harry went as as an undergraduate. And um, the first, actually, we've just announced is a terrific young Texan journalist called Waylon Cunningham. And we're going to do an annual convening in London called Truth Tellers, Harold Evans Investigative Journalism Summit. And I'm going to try to 
bring together all the media leaders and the and the and these younger very innovative journalists that are out there without platforms and sort of introduce them to one another and and create a network essentially of um of journalistic support. Congratulations. That sounds amazing. And, and what an amazing legacy for Harry as well. And you mentioned the UK. I, I wanted to ask you, as someone who's worked in both the UK and the US uh, journalism industry, can you compare and contrast the two? And, and I guess also the audiences, do they differ in their appreciation of, of articles and, and news from a US-UK perspective? I think there is a, a more vibrant literary culture uh, and a more vibrant press culture in England than there is in the US. It's also suffered its depletions, you know, quite dramatically so in terms of because of digital journalism and, you know, print has really had a uh, quite a hammering in the UK. But it's there's much more plurality of press in the UK and there is a much more sort of intense literary culture. I think that in the UK, I've found there is a big difference in audiences to things you write. I mean, in England, uh, there's much more interest in how you write, actually. There, there's a, there is a, a savouring of sentences still in the UK, which I think is less so here. I mean, in America, it's much more about what you're saying and what you're delivering, you know, what's in it, what's the, what's the news in it, what's the scoop in it, as it were. And in the UK, they have that too, but they also are very, are very sort of appreciative of good writing, more appreciative, I would say. So that's a plus side, I think, for the UK. You've also written extensively about the British monarchy, including authoring the Diana Chronicles and most recently the Palace Papers. And in fact, you and I were meant to be recording this podcast on the day that Her Late Majesty the Queen died. What are your takeaways about the role of the monarchy as it relates to the UK's identity? Well, I think that what we've seen with the Queen's funeral and the transition to King Charles III is that the monarchy is an essential strand of, of British life that that people nourish and you know and want to nourish and and cherish. You know, when the Queen died, I actually in my book before that, which I wrote, you know, before that happened, I, I did anticipate a much more sort of collective nervous breakdown after the passing of Elizabeth II. But actually, what's interesting is that because it was so flawlessly handled, because the King Charles stepped up so authoritatively, so quickly, it, it really, you saw the great unfolding of the tradition of monarchy before your very eyes. It was like a dramatized history lesson. I mean, you know, the, 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 the pageantry of it, the beauty of it, the flawless execution of that, those days of mourning and the funeral were so deeply emotionally uh, rich, actually, that you saw how people relate to that and how in this era of sort of partisan turmoil to have a figure, the monarch, in a position that's over the political striving, over the political rakas that are going on and over this over mighty, it's really shows essentially the strength of the, of the monarchy. And I think that what was kind of beautiful about the funeral was that, you know, you saw all this, these amazing, you know, the militaries, slow walking behind the coffin and so on. And, you know, but it wasn't a martial display. It wasn't a display of, like you see in Russia or China, of people sort of, you know, soldiers being intimidating. It was all about celebrating the great tradition and, and, and the monarchy and this great, great woman who had passed. So it was, it was very, very moving, really. And, of course, most moving of all was the five-mile queues. You know, I mean, the fact that people waited so patiently 14, 15 hours just to pay their respects to to the Queen. So many of them said, you know, she served us for 70 years. She did her duty for 70 years. It's the least we can do to wait here for 14 hours or whatever it was they were waiting 
to pay our respects. And I found that I found that very moving. I was um, incredibly touched as well being out here at the British consulate at the American reaction and obviously the Queen championed so much the the, the, the British American relationship and I think met 13 of the last 14 presidents on top of even more prime ministers but that clearly that relationship also clearly runs deep and what's your view of how Americans have looked at the monarchy in some respects it feels like they they kind of almost want a piece of it themselves well yes and no I mean you know sometimes they they laugh and they say oh it's also Ruritanian how could you have all this dressing up in the robes but then they understand I think that it really was an exercise in great soft power what we saw during the Queen's funeral, because and the reign and the accession of Charles, was people kind of understood the dignity of it and understood the power of it and the potency of it. And it it stopped being simply a kind of display of Ruritanian, you know, pageantry. And suddenly I think people realized for the first time its meaning. I wanted to move on to find out from you what type of role you've enjoyed the most. So you've been a journalist, you've, as part of that, been a magazine editor, columnist, talk show host, and a book author. What, what's been your favourite role and why? Oh, I've lo- I love being an editor. You know, I, I, I'm a news junkie. I love uh, waving my wand and, and, you know, and bringing people together in an atmosphere of collegial excitement, you know, where you're all working towards one deadline. There's nothing like the community of all working to a deadline. It's it's very exciting. Uh, so I, I've loved that. And I've loved being in New York. I mean, I'm so lucky to live here, frankly. America and New York has been so welcoming to both me and Harry. I mean, you know, we both had these big jobs in publishing in such a welcoming atmosphere to us because uh, I don't know that an American would necessarily have had quite the playground that we were given here. What do you think it takes to be a successful Brit in New York? As you said, it's something so you've so obviously accomplished. What what would you say are the key tenets of being a successful well, Brit? You do need you do need to be tenacious. You know, New York's all about success. And if you you have a success here, you're going to be completely embraced. It it can be daunting to, to, to feel you're not a success. And I certainly struggled with Vanity Fair at the beginning. It wasn't an instant success by any means. So for two years, I had to kind of tough it out as someone who people thought the magazine would close and people were aggressive and they were in your face. And it is, it is aggressive and it is in your face, you know, much more kind of genteel in England in terms of the knives that are wielded. Doesn't mean to say that the knives aren't any more lethal, but they're not necessarily wielded frontally. They're they're wielded in your back. So I had to get used to that sort of really frontal aggression, if you like, at times. People just saying, you know, you're finished and things like that. And you think, what? Did somebody actually just say that to me? They did very often. And, And it was hard, actually. It's very hard. So you have to be tenacious. But I think that if you show that you are voraciously interested and and have a great appetite for what is there for you, people do embrace you. You know, that, that, that in the end... It actually has a big heart, New York. It's just a heart that's, you have to win it. And once you've won it, it's a very big heart, a very generous heart. Tina Brown, thank you for sharing your many impressive experiences, including your work on Harry's legacy. Thank you for reminding us of the joys of a good old British fry up. And thank (laughs) you for coming on Brits in the Big Apple. Thank you. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.